Father, we come this morning uh, just desiring to hear from you. Lord, we need so much uh, to meet with you, and Lord, we long so much to grow in our relationship with you. I believe that every person here this morning is here because they're seeking you, Lord, and I thank you for your promise that you tell us when we seek you, we will find you when we seek you with all of our heart. Lord, I thank you this morning that you love each and every one of us here. You care for us and love us more than we could ever know. You know us completely. You know everything that's going on in our minds and our hearts, the circumstances of our lives. And Lord, you offer yourself to us and you are what we need. We thank you for your incredible grace given to all who believe in your son. Thank you for your perfect work accomplished for us. Thank you that you invite us to trust and receive from your fullness, grace upon grace. Lord, we pray this morning that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit that is alive in all who believe and by your living word that is able to penetrate to the depths of our hearts. We pray that you would do this for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, good morning, church. I'm Barrett, one of the pastors here. And if you've got your Bibles, I encourage you to get them open to the book of Galatians. We're gonna be continuing this morning our series uh, called Centered and our study of the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians is all about the gospel of God's incredible grace. We call it centered because truly the message of the book as Paul the apostle writes to the churches of the Galatia region is for them to continue to be centered in the grace of Jesus. Not only for their standing with God, their salvation, being made right with God, but also for their life in God as they grow. And he has shared this gospel of God's grace. He has uh, just passionately proclaimed uh, that it's our life and our hope is all about God's love for us. It's not about our love for him, but his love for us. It's not about our work for him, but his work for us. It's not our, our efforts to do good for him, but his incredible, powerful uh, effort to, to save all who believe in him. It's all about uh, God's grace and mercy uh, for those who desperately depend on him. And Paul shared this from the doctrine of the gospel. He shared this from his personal testimony. He's exemplified this as he's related to those who would come against the gospel and lead God's people astray as he's tried to call uh, even Christian people who by their actions aren't living and centered in the gospel as he's calling out that hypocrisy and bringing them back to grace and of course last week as we talked through that incredible doctrine of justification. This morning um, we are going to be starting into chapter, chapter three. We talked about last week how by faith alone we're made right with God and uh, we're, we're accepted in, by God, and we're also become alive to God. And this morning, we're going to be starting into uh, chapter 3. And chapter 3 and 4 are some of the strongest writing, really, of Paul and perhaps of the, old, the whole uh, New Testament. It is absolutely uh, just jam-packed, filled with truth. And there are going to be times, I mean, I hope you guys are reading Galatians in your personal study and engaging with us on the app uh, through the devotions and in small groups. There are going to be times as you're going through chapter three and four and you're going to be like, what? <laughs> um, and you're going to have to reread and you're going to have to really think deeply. But what's at stake here is so, so, so important because again, Paul's helping us see that this gospel, understanding it, receiving it, living in it, is really everything. We should want to engage with difficult text and really deep text uh, 
so that we could understand and really live in the depth of what God has designed for us as his people. Um, I am so excited about these chapters, and I'm so excited about the message today. The message today is called Gospel Purity, and if you've got something to write with, I encourage you always to get out uh, a notebook or maybe your Galatians-centered guide. This morning is called Gospel Purity, Nothing Else Added. And I've called it this because really chapter 3 begins a turning point where I talked about this on the very first week of the, the series of Galatians when we were all sitting here in the dark. Y'all remember that? If you were here, that was fun. Um, but I, I mentioned that the gospel is not just something that we're saved by, but it's something that we, that we really grow in. It's not just, as Tim Keller says, the ABCs of Christianity, but it's the A to Z of Christianity. That it's really... We never leave the gospel behind. We begin in faith and then we proceed in faith in the gospel. And so this morning, let's read together chapter 3. I'll read from the ESV, verses 1 to 14, which is our text today. And then we're going to talk through it together. Paul says, God says to us through Paul, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is God's word. Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 to 14. Well, this morning, as we talk about gospel purity, nothing else added, I want to go ahead and give you a main point. And this really is 
kind of more of a conversation that we're going to have today around this main point that I've just pulled from this text to summarize it for you. We'll walk through how uh, God shows us this. It's a little longer today. I know if you're writing, it might take another minute or two than normal, but I, I want to make sure that we all are engaging with what God's Word is saying. The main point I see is this, which is that we grow in relationship with God in the same way we enter in relationship with God. By faith and desperate dependence in the transforming grace and power of Jesus. I'll say it again. We grow in relationship with God in the same way that we enter into relationship with God. By faith and dependence, not just dependence, desperate dependence, on the transforming grace and power of Jesus. I say this this morning uh, with confidence that this is the main point of the text. And I'll walk you through the text, and we're going to look at how Paul kind of makes his point uh, in the Word of God, because I want your confidence not to be on me and what I'm saying, but on God and what he said. Studying the Bible, guys, is so fun. It's just so fun. And I hope, as you grow in your relationship with God, that you will learn to love the Bible. It is awesome, the opportunity that we have to open God's Word and to just look at what he said and to study it rigorously and to hear from him and what he means and wants to say to us in our hearts uh, for our lives with him. So I want your confidence to be in God's word. Here's, here's why I, I believe this is the main point. If you look at chapter three, verse one, right out the gate, Paul's going, you crazy Galatians, what are you doing? He doesn't really say those words, but it would kind of be similar. He says, you foolish Galatians. Y'all see those words? These are unusual words for Paul in his, his letters. Oh, foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? I don't know about you, but that is not a word I use very often. That is kind of a strong word. Would you agree? Something has gone wrong. Now, again, he's writing to the people of Jesus, people who have entered in relationship with Jesus in this region. He's not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to believers. So he's saying to believers, oh, you're acting foolishly. Someone has come in and messed you up. Look at verse 3. He uses another word. Are you so foolish? Something's gone wrong. In other words, the way they started is not the way that they are now continuing. And the whole issue here goes down to one phrase. If you go back to verse 2, you'll see it. Over and over, he contrasts. I'm just using this one verse to point it out, but especially in these first five verses, he contrasts, is your life by the law or is it by hearing by faith? Over and over and over, he's basically saying, how is it that God wants you to live your life? Is it by the law or is it by hearing and faith? Now, he's going to argue that it's by hearing and faith, which is why the main point is what it is. The way that we continue in our relationship with God is the way that we started in our relationship with God by faith and desperate dependence on the transforming grace and power of Jesus. But this is the whole issue. I'm just getting the main point straight from Paul's words. The issue is that the way that they are wanting to grow in relationship with God 
is not right. And in fact, they have bought into the idea that somebody else has told them that, yeah, we're saved by grace, but then we continue with effort, our effort. Yes, God saves us by grace, but after we're saved, we work hard for God. There's a lot that we've got to get right for God. There's a lot we need to do for him. That's the narrative that the Galatian Christians had bought into. And I tell you the truth, it's a narrative that I buy into a lot. And it's a narrative that I think if you're honest with yourself, you probably have struggled with or perhaps bought into a lot. See, we don't just start by grace. We must continue by grace. Now, Paul makes his point to them. He, he's basically saying, guys, you've got to keep growing in the way you started, by faith. Now, he's going to use two proofs. One is, I'll go ahead and start with this one. Proof number one that he uses to them is their own. He says, think about your own personal experience with God. This is the first proof that Paul gives to the Galatian Christians and to us. His point is, you're gonna, you've got to continue by grace, not work. Now, here's why I'm telling you this, Paul says. Think back to your own personal experience with God. And he says to the Christians in Galatia, there's a couple of things that he wants them to remember. Number one, he wants them to remember that that you saw the Son of God by faith and not by works. You saw the Son of God. Look at the Bible. I'll tell you where I get that point. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Paul reminds the Galatians of what they'd heard of Christ crucified through his preaching and others' preaching. Why mention this? Well, because the most pressing issue is not what the Galatian Christians did, but they were saved when they heard and saw so vividly portrayed. I mean, they actually, with their own physical eyes, didn't see him. But through the preaching of God's word, They saw with their spiritual eyes Christ crucified. And what captured their hearts and won their affections, what changed their lives, was not focusing on what they could do for God, but realizing and recognizing what God and his love has done for them. And by their spiritual eyes, they saw and heard of what God could do for all who believed. And their hearts were moved. It was powerful and personal when they believed and they were born again. They, how did they hear? How did they see Jesus? It wasn't by what they did, but it was by what God did for them. It was by faith, secondly. He says not only, I mean, this is true of you. If you think back to your life, how did you see the Son of God? you remember the first time your heart really saw Jesus? Was that anything of what you had done? No. Your heart was captured by what God had done for you. It was faith connecting with God's work for you. Secondly, 
He says, not only did you see the Son of God, but secondly, you received the Holy Spirit. Think back, Christians. He says in chapter 3, let me ask you only this, he says in verse 2. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Think back to your own testimony. When did you receive the indwelling presence of God in your life? The Holy Spirit is monumentally important in our lives as Christians. We as Christians believe that we are not alone but that truly we have been made alive to God like we talked about last week. And the Holy Spirit dwells. God's presence with us is the Holy Spirit. And he lives within us. We, he makes a tabernacle, Corinthians talks about, in us. When is it that you remember receiving the Holy Spirit if you're a Christian today? Over 18 times in this book, Paul talks about the Holy Spirit and all of the amazing work of the Holy Spirit. When did you first receive the Holy Spirit? Was it when you were working hard for God? Or was there a point in your life that you felt conviction of sin, which is part of what the Holy Spirit does? John 16 talks about that. But felt conviction of God, saw the Son, and opened your life to receive Him, to put all of your faith in Him, to surrender totally to Him? Was it then that the Holy Spirit supernaturally came into your life, the very indwelling presence of God with you? Was it then when you put your faith in Christ? Oh, for all of us, it was when we put our faith in Christ. It was not something we did to try to get the Holy Spirit. It was a total gift of God. What Paul says is, listen, think about the Holy Spirit. Did that come to you by faith or by work? Clearly it came. Their answer would have been, by, by faith. The Holy Spirit completes us. Having begun in the spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? Third, he says, not only should we think back about when we first saw the son, when we first received the Holy Spirit, but third, that we should think about how we've experienced miracles of the father. He says to the Galatians in verse five of chapter three, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? His argument just keeps getting stronger and stronger and stronger. Because what he's saying is, you guys know by your own experience how you sense the Holy Spirit's work in your life. The Holy Spirit works not as you rely on yourself, but as you consciously and continually rest in Christ alone for your acceptability before God and your completeness before him. That's when we connect with the Holy Spirit. The same phrase among you here in the Greek could also be translated within you. And I think most of us have experienced in our own lives what we would describe as supernatural, miraculous change. 
It's part of what we believe. You know, we don't believe that Christianity is just a mental assent to certain doctrines about a person of Jesus. We believe that Christianity, at its fundamental, is a relationship with the person who is Jesus Christ, the most powerful in all of the world. He is God. And when we enter in a relationship with Jesus, everything about us changes. He makes us new. 2 Corinthians 5 says, behold, the old is gone, and you are a new creation. That is a supernatural working of God. And as we continue to trust and obey God, I guarantee you, if I ask for people to step up this morning at the mic and just talk to us about what God has done powerfully, miraculously in your life, I could get a, we could sit here for hours and it'd be fun. The Holy Spirit doesn't just come into our lives at salvation, but continues to live in our lives and dwell in our lives and work in our lives in a way that allows us to be transformed, as another book says, from one degree of glory to another. We experience a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, but how does that happen? As we try hard for God? No. As we come to the end of ourselves and say, God, I can't, but you can't. It's not about me, but it's about you. And I trust, look away from myself and trust Christ and his grace that is sufficient. That's how these things happen in our lives. Can I get a witness? All right. So Paul's saying, okay, just to summarize here. Paul is saying to them, okay, I know that you've been tempted to believe that you start by grace and then you need to move on from grace and and work yourself toward completeness in God. But that's just not right. And let me start by telling you why it's not right. Look at your own personal experience with God. You saw the Son. How? By faith, not works. You received the Holy Spirit. How? By faith and not works. You have experienced miraculous miracles and miraculous transformation in your life. How? By faith and not works. So, okay. Paul's like, can I get a witness? So, his point, summary point is this. If you did not begin with the law, why are you now trying to grow by work? If you did not begin with it being about you, why, why, why are you trying to mature? Why are you trying to grow in relationship with God by making it about what you can do for God? By making it about law and works? Why? Don't you know That that's not right? That's exactly what he says in verse 3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? That word is in the Greek, epitaleo, which basically means completion. It means that all of us, as Tim Keller says, are trying to, to complete ourselves. Even as we come to Christ in salvation, we know that we're made right by God. We're justified by his declaration of our lives as we're in Christ that 
that we are righteous because of him, but we still sense that we haven't arrived yet. Anybody, anybody sense that? We sense that we, we're still not complete. And we are most often tempted to trust our flesh and effort to attain that completion through some kind of moral or vocational or relational achievement. That is how we are so commonly wired to be fleshly thinking. But Paul says that the gospel means abandoning that way of thinking and embracing an entirely new gospel approach. In other words, the way that we're saved is all by grace, but we have to realize the way that we mature and attain completion in Christ is also all by grace. Before we became Christians, we trusted other things to make us feel complete. But now that we are Christians, is to be completely revolutionized because we believe in Christ and in Christ alone that we find completion. Everybody tracking with that? This is huge. This is huge. So he says, are you so foolish? Why would you continue in a way different than the way you began? Second proof that he gives. So the first proof is he wants us to think about our own personal experience with God. The second proof is this. He wants us to think about our forefather of faith, Abraham. This is verse 6 through 14. He wants to think about Abraham. Now, this is huge for the Christians of Galatia because what they are struggling with is, remember from previous weeks, they are contending against the Judaizers, people who think that, yes, believe in Christ, but you also got to add in all of this Jewish law and observance and behavior to make yourself fully acceptable to God. They're encouraging people that in addition to believing in Christ, they need to be circumcised. Now all of this goes back in Jewish lineage to the forefather who is Abraham. They certainly need to hear this. Paul just pulls out Abraham and he goes, okay, you want to talk. Let's talk about Abraham. If we want to make it about religious work and Jewishness, let's talk about Abraham, who unquestionably was revered as the father of the Jewish faith. But he also says to us, even those of us who are not Jewish, look at Abraham and consider him as a proof. There's a couple of things we learn about uh, Abraham. The first one is this. Abraham was saved by faith before he was circumcised or did anything. Again, don't trust me. Listen to where I got this from God's word. Verse six, as after he says, was it by work or by faith? He says in verse six, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now this comes from Genesis chapter 15, verse six. Literally, you can find the, the same exact quote. Paul's just pulling it from the Old Testament. 
It says in Genesis 15, as Abraham is working to, to follow God in obedience, it says, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now this word counted is the same word we talked about last week, declared. It is literally an imputation. I'm not gonna reteach what I taught last week, but if you missed it, you certainly need to go and understand what it means to be justified, how to have righteousness imputed to you, given to you in a declaration from God, the holy judge. It's the same word. And what God says is when Abraham believed God, at the moment of his belief, it was counted him. It was imputed, declared about him that he was righteous. Was Abraham any more holy uh, at the point of the declaration in his flesh? No, he hadn't done anything. By his faith alone, he was declared righteous. And in fact, it's, it's a huge point because if you think about Abraham's story, what does it mean to have saving faith? It means to believe in the gospel promise. What was Abraham believing? He was believing a promise that God made. And it also means that saving faith means trusting God's provision and not your performance because the promise that God made to him had to do with giving Abraham a family. And Abraham was old as dirt and his wife was barren, which means the only way for the promise to be realized would be for God to provide it, not for Abraham to perform it. The only way. Which means it's not only about the first moment of belief, but the path of continued belief has to be total faith, desperate, desperate dependence upon the transforming grace and power of our almighty God. It's not just the starting point, it's the continuing point. Can I get a witness? Okay, good. I just want to make sure y'all are with me today, okay? It's huge. So Paul says, the first point here, that Abraham was saved by faith before he was circumcised or anything, which means for the gospel to be pure, you have to believe that nothing else has to be added. It's God's grace and power alone, and that's all you need. That's all you need. Abraham doesn't add to the equation in any way. It's sufficient for God to have made the promise and be willing to provide. That's all Abraham needs. He does not bring anything else to the table. From the start through the rest of his life, the fulfillment of the promise, all of it is God. It's God, it's God, it's God. Abraham's only role then is to trust God, desperately depend on God. Secondly, Abraham not only was he saved by faith before he was circumcised, but he's an example of the way that God would save both Jews and non-Jews. He's an example of the way that God would save both Jews and non-Jews. For those who think that you need to be of a certain culture or a certain cultural standard or religious code to be right with God, you're just wrong. God doesn't save according to ethnic, cultural, racial, political, religious background. You, you name it, I can keep going. God saves by grace for those who trust him. 
he says this in verse 7 to 9. So it says in verse 6, just as Abraham believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Okay, what he's saying is, it's not those who are of bloodline Jewish descent who are sons of Abraham, like some would want the Galatian Christians and even today to believe. No, who are true sons of Abraham? Those who have, who share his faith. Father Abraham had many sons. Y'all know that song? I just popped it to my head and I didn't plan on that, but that was fun. <laughs> and I am one of them and so are you. If you just have his faith. That's not what it says, but that's what it should say. Um, <laughs> all right. Verse eight, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, foreseeing, okay, this is God speaking to us, and the scripture, which God saw in advance that he would justify non-Jewish people by what? Faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you, Abraham, shall all the nations be blessed. And he summarizes this point in verse 9. So then, those who are of, what? Faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. What he's saying is it was never about Jewishness. It was never about circumcision. It was never about law keeping. It was always about, what? Faith. In fact, Paul argues in Romans chapter 2, as he deals with this in another book, he says, a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. This is Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. What Paul is saying is, from the beginning, it wasn't about Jewishness, and it wasn't about physical circumcision. It was about the heart. Whether a person would have faith in God's transforming grace and power and live in desperate dependence upon him. Third, we learn about Abraham. Not only was he saved before he did anything, was he an example of the way God would save Jews and non-Jews, but third, he's a demonstration of the inability of the law to save. I told you these passages are kind of dense and a little bit heady, but I hope you're following. I've tried to summarize it clearly. If you have any questions at any time, you're always welcome to call your small group leader, call the church. We want you to love and receive God's word and what it means for us. A demonstration of the inability of the law to save Verses 10 to 12, Paul says, for all who rely on works of the law, in other words, for all who think that it's about your working for God as you continue in relationship with him, for all who rely on that way, what does it say? Are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, it says, the one who does them shall live by them. 
To live by something is to look for something to become your happiness and fulfillment. Would you agree with that? If you're gonna live by something, that's essentially what it means. And what he's saying is, all of us, if you get to the bottom of your heart and life, you have something that gives you meaning and confidence and definition. You all, we all live by something. Something that we look to for happiness and fulfillment. Now what he says is, if you're in Christ, you, you cannot be looking to you, you and what you do. Your accomplishments, your working, your achievements, your striving, your successes or failures. You can't be, it's not about what you do anymore. He says, for those who live looking to the law or for, to, to themselves and their accomplishments for happiness and fulfillment, you're under a curse. It's two ways that you're under a curse. One is a, a, a more objective way. Um, because to live by the law and actually be fulfilled in it, you would have to, it says in verse 10, abide by all things written by the book of the law and do them. And there's not a single one of you, nor me, that can ever do that. We've never done it. We're not doing it today, and we will never be able to do it. You go that route, trying to live by yourself and your efforts for God, you go that route, and in the end, you're gonna fall short. It's a curse, objectively. Secondly, there's more of a subjective curse, which Keller also talks about some. He, he talks about how not only do we end up with an objective curse, but we end up with this subjective curse, meaning that if we uh, try to save ourselves by performance, what ends up happening psychologically to us is we end up living in anxiety and constant insecurity because you can never be sure that you're living up to God's standards sufficiently. It makes you sensitive to criticism. It makes you envious of others. It makes you intimidated by people who outshine you in their work versus yours. It makes you nervous and timid because you're not sure of where you stand with God and other people. Or it could make you swaggering and boastful because you are convinced of where you stand. That is a subjective curse that comes with the law. And the reality is God says no one, verse 11, is justified before God by the law. You cannot find ultimate happiness or fulfillment in that way of life which is why he points to Habakkuk chapter two, verse four. This is what Martin Luther, when he was climbing up the steps of the tower, this is what sparked the Reformation. He had been working and working according to his religious background, trying to be right with God. And at one point, the Holy Spirit brought to his mind Habakkuk chapter two, verse four, and he later wrote and journaled about it. And he said, it overwhelmed me. The Bible says the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, those who are right with God are not right with God by working for God. They're right with God because they trust God and his grace. 
And at that point, he got up off of his knees from climbing that tower where he was trying to attain something before God and reached full penitence. And he ran out of that place free and fulfilled because he had encountered grace. And that grace transformed his life. And we today, our church is a product of that transformation. And I'm so thankful. It's all about grace, last but not least on this point. As we talk about Abraham, the summary probably of all of this is this, verses 13 and 14, the summary point. Salvation and growth come through faith in Christ alone. Salvation and growth come through faith in Christ alone. Look at verse 13 and 14. Paul ends this section by saying, Christ has redeemed us from that curse. It's not able to make you happy. It's not able to fulfill. But Christ has redeemed you, if you would believe him, from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through, what? Faith. He quotes here from Deuteronomy. Because people who were condemned by God were stoned to death. That's what sin deserves. Some of us don't like hearing that we deserve to die. But that's what God says. Our sin has a penalty, and the penalty is death. Death, the ultimate sense, is separation from God, who is life. In the Old Testament, as people were condemned and stoned to death, they were hung on a tree. And the Bible says clearly, God says, curse is everyone who is hung on a tree. You look at that and you see a picture of sin. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he's put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For hang, a hangman on the tree is cursed by God. It's a picture. It's a picture of the curse that is deserved because of sin. Paul sees the ultimate fulfillment of this picture. And he says, friends, I got good news. And you look at that tree and you, just, you see what you deserve, but I'm telling you to look at a different tree. Look at the cross of Jesus Christ. Look at the tree of God, the ultimate fulfillment of his mercy and his promise to be gracious to all who believe. Look at the tree of Jesus. And you see one who is cursed there, but he is cursed though he has no sin. Why is he there? Like we talked about last week, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is our sin that put him on that tree. And it says that because he took our place, he is able to redeem us from the curse of the law. Praise be to God. So that now we don't live by law, because he's paid the penalty of the law, but we live, as he says in verse 14. He did this so that the blessing of Abraham might also come to us, so that we too might receive the promised spirit through faith. Through faith. He's given the two proofs. Now let's go back to the main point, and let's land the plane, okay? I'm going to get very practical talking about your life today. Here we go. 
The main point is this. We grow in relationship with God in the same way that we enter in relationship with God. By faith and desperate dependence in the transforming grace and power of Jesus. If you go back to chapter 3, verse 3. This is really his, his main question here. Are you so foolish? Having begun by grace, having begun by the Spirit, having begun by recognizing. See, when we're saved, what is required to be saved? You have to recognize. You have a holy God who all is owed to. And you are utterly sinful and fall so far short. You are unworthy and deserving. You have no plea in your hand other than God be merciful. That's how we start. By depending entirely on his grace. Calling out to him for his transformative grace and power at work in our hearts. Everybody agree with that? So be careful then. Because you and I could be tempted to move on from that position of desperate dependence and faith alone. We could be tempted to move on. But we are not to move on because the way that we grow is the way that we began. The way the Spirit entered your life is the same way that the Spirit advances your life. This is huge. I've got a chart here that I want to put up as we close this morning from a resource called The Gospel-Centered Life. The chart depicts passage of time in our lives, and the point that it splits here is a picture of the point of our conversion. Now, two things happen when we come to Christ. At one moment, there is a, an awareness of God's holiness. And at the same moment, there's also an awareness of my flesh and sinfulness. And to come to Christ looks like a recognition that the only way that I could bridge that gap, that I could be made right with God and put in relationship with him, is by the grace of Jesus afforded to me on the cross it's the only way. All God, all grace, all Jesus, all for the glory of God alone, all by faith alone. That's how we start. Everybody there? Now, the interesting thing is, as these lines continue, what should be happening in our life is a growing awareness of God's holiness and a growing awareness of our sinfulness, such that as we grow in our Christian faith, we are more and more and more and more and more amazed, grateful, surrendered to, desperate for the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We don't grow less dependent on God's grace. We grow more dependent on God's grace. We don't grow less appreciative of Jesus Christ. We grow more appreciative of Jesus Christ. We don't grow more independent. We grow more dependent. Everybody tracking? 
This is the way that our life is meant to be lived. Now, I think I put on the application point here. We must believe the gospel and sufficiency of God's grace for us in Jesus for both salvation and growth in God. We have to believe that. But let me tell you this. We must be very careful not to shrink the cross or to make a mockery of God's grace, as we talked about last week, by choosing to live by flesh. And there's two words here that I'm listing from gospel-centered life because I think they're powerful. One is pretending, and another is performing. I want to start by talking about Pretending. Pretending is to minimize our sin by acting as if we're better than what we really are. And this is a huge way that many of us struggle to continue to live in grace. We begin to minimize our sin by pretending by acting as if we're better than what we are. If you look back at the chart, I'm gonna flip back to this in a second, but the pretending is down here. When, when you have an issue where you are not growing in awareness of your flesh and sinfulness, you end up with an effort to pretend, and by pretending, you end up shrinking the cross. Now let's go back to the slide that we were just on, because I wanna to talk to you about some ways that we see pretending. Pretending looks like becoming dishonest about our sin. Comparing ourselves to others. Well, you know, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, look at hers. No, 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 I don't really struggle with that so much. Excuse making. Well, you know, my dad and my mom were like this and it's just a, it's just a genetic thing. Yeah, you know, it's just the environment that I work in. You just kind of got to go with the flow, you know. Or even... Another form is false righteousness. Looking to a righteousness apart from Jesus to make you happy and fulfilled. A job righteousness. I'm a hard worker, so God will reward me. And this is often what happens to us even after salvation, okay? (laughs) Where we fall into these temptations. Or somehow I'm righteous because of my family, you know? I, I, I do right things as a parent, so I'm more godly than parents who can't control their kids, and we start feeling better about ourselves on the basis of our family performance rather than Christ's performance. Theological righteousness. I have good theology, so God prefers me over people who have bad theology or intellectual righteousness. I read more. I, I can be more articulate. I'm more culturally savvy or well-traveled, so I'm obviously superior to others who don't have that or a schedule righteousness. I'm very disciplined and rigorous. I'm a type A. I get things done. I don't forget things on my list. So therefore, I'm more mature or superior than others. A flexibility righteousness. I'm flexible and relaxed. I'm just a relational person. I've got time for people. So that makes me superior than others. Mercy righteousness. I care about the poor. I'm just totally committed to the disadvantage. I live in a rough neighborhood. So therefore... I'm 
feeling better about myself with God than if I weren't in this position. A legalistic righteousness. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't do drugs. I don't sleep around with people who aren't my wife. Other Christians aren't just concerned about holiness. I, I am financial. I use money wisely. Or I'm not in debt or I've got savings or I'm giving a political righteousness. You know, if you really love God, you're going to vote for my candidate. Of course I'm right on that one. Tolerance righteousness. I'm, I mean, I could just keep going. You want me to keep going or am I stepped on enough toes? <laughs> this is practical. This gets out of Galatians 3 and applies it to our life today. He's saying, are you so foolish? If you begin with it all being grace and your awareness of God's holiness and your awareness of your total sinfulness and you just had to put your desperate dependence on only the mercy and grace of God and yet you're going to go feel better about yourself on these superficial, silly things. You really think that you're being made more complete by that stuff? No! Your only completeness is in your standing with Christ. Stop thinking about you, what you can do, or what you've done, or what you want to do, and just learn to think about Jesus more. Learn to appreciate the cross more. Let the cross have its proper place in your life. Amen? And on the other side, you've got performing, which we're going to get into next week, so I'm just going to try to, I'll just mention it, and then we'll talk more next week, but You've got performing, which is, instead of minimizing your sinfulness, performing is minimizing God's holiness. In such a way that you begin to think that you can actually earn favor with God by living up to his expectations. Or your mistaken view of your, his expectations. And you begin to think that God is more or less pleased with you as you look upon his face the way his face looks in your failure is different than the way his face looks in your success. And when his face begins to change like that, you've balled into a false gospel. You're living according to your performance and not according to his grace. Paul says to us, this, is, this message is all about gospel purity. And really, it's all about sanctification. We're not talking this morning about salvation. We're talking about sanctification, the way that we mature in Christ. And he says to you, friend, the way that you're sanctified, the way you grow in Christ is the same way that you are saved, that you begin in Christ. Let me remind you of how that happens. It happens not through your work, but it happens as you trust his grace. It happens not through your effort, but as you depend desperately upon his mercy. The way we grow is the way that we begin, by faith and desperate dependence on the transformative grace and power of Jesus. And I am just praying for you, and I ask that you pray for me, that our lives as we grow would reflect more and more and more of the cross. Amen? That we not minimize what Christ has done by trying to make it about us. With our issues, and man, oh man, do you have issues. I mean, I have issues. You have them too. <laughs> See, you have issues. Anger, pride, relational dysfunction. 
perhaps, I mean, I, I don't know what, where your struggles are. But I know that sometimes we can try to cope with those and overcome those in ways that are not rooted in the gospel, not centered in the gospel. What Paul says to us is, the way to overcome, the way to grow, is by recognizing more of God's holiness and more of your sinfulness so that you can depend more on his grace. Father, thank you for this time that we've had together this morning, and I pray that your word would just be planted deep in the soil of our hearts. Lord, I know today, I know today that we all have areas of our heart and lives that we need to repent, that we are trying to live for you or to be better for you or to be less sinful, uh, to grow in you by ways that are not centered in your gospel. Oh God, we ask for your forgiveness. Lord, we ask that you forgive us for pretending and you forgive us for performing. We ask that you forgive us for continuing in a way that we did not begin. Oh God, help us to be centered in your gospel and help us to be centered in your grace. Oh Lord, help us to know that the way that we are to continue and to be sanctified is by trusting your grace and power, not by trying harder, but by trusting more, by depending desperately upon you. Oh God, we can do no more now than we did the day we were saved. There's nothing we can do. All we can do is just give our whole hearts to you and say, oh, Jesus, be merciful. Change me from the inside out. I believe that you can complete me. I believe that you have finished the work. I believe that your grace is sufficient. I believe the same power that raised you from the dead is at work today to change my heart. Oh, God, would you make my life all about you, Jesus, and your grace. I'm praying this for your glory, Jesus. Would you work today? In your name I pray, amen.